All right, good morning, familia. Let me grab this really quick. Um, as Chad said, my name is uh, Mark Anthony. You guys know who Mark Anthony is? You are not a spiritual at all. Let me put my time here. Um, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez, as Chad said. I've, I've been in the church for about 15 years, and if you're new to, to Tri-Village, you probably never heard of me before. Um, uh, Will and I used to work together. Actually, Will and I was part of my team at Iglesia uh, when, he, when he first came to uh, uh, WBC and Iglesia, um, and it's always a privilege for me to be here. Um, for the last few weeks, we have been going through this series that we have called Explore God, and basically what we're doing is try to give biblical answers to important questions we all have. Uh, so it doesn't matter if you are a Christian. Uh, I have been a Christian for a long time. There has been times in your walk with Jesus that you actually have asked one of these questions. Uh, it, it is okay to have questions about Christianity even if you are a Christian. Um, if you have never had those questions, believe me, you will have those questions at one point in your life. And if you're here visiting and you're exploring Christianity, these are questions that, we must, that you must uh, find answers to. Um, what, I, what I want you to, so the way I want to treat the sermon is like this. If you are a Christian, I'm giving you tools, uh, to the, something to defend your faith, all right? And if you are not, not a Christian and you are exploring Christianity, I'm giving you all the reasons why we think uh, that Christianity is the way it is, Christianity. Uh, today, I, I, I have to answer the question, is the Bible reliable? So for the sake of honesty here, just let me ask really quick, how many of you guys ever in your life have ever wondered if the Bible is reliable? Can you please raise your hand? Okay. How many of you guys have, uh, for those of you that read the Bible maybe a little bit, um, uh, you read something and it doesn't make any sense to you? Can you raise your hand? All right. Is there anybody here who knows and understands the entire Bible? You see, that's the problem. It, the problem is that we, don't, that we don't understand the Bible. The problem is that sometimes we assume that we understand the Bible, right? And what is interesting, though, is that that's the behavior that some uh, people that, 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 uh, that reject the Bible have. Just because there are things in the Bible that they don't understand or they could question, uh, they make the assumption that the Bible is not reliable. So they... Um, the, the, the text we're going to read today uh, was written by Paul, and the reason why I, I chose this text is because Paul is a really good example of someone that uh, wrestled with the scripture, and that he had his, his own, uh, uh, you could say, experience of conversion, and he came to the conclusion that the Bible is reliable, because the Bible is the word of God, and, and I'm going to explain that in a second. So the text that we are about to read, Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy is a young uh, preaching, teaching, shepherding pastor, and it seems like he, he's overseeing a, a group of uh, churches, right? And uh, he's such a young pastor that Paul wants to give him something um, to sustain the church in the midst of problems. That's the whole idea of the, uh, we're going to be reading uh, let me see what Pastor Jesus. Second Timothy, uh, chapter three, verses fourteen to seventeen. So while you get there, let me give you a little bit of background here. So um, Timothy is overseeing this group of house churches, or small churches, and he's such a young pastor that people are pushing him back and forth, and, and the church is being infected, you could say, by different teachings and different doctrines and different theologies. And Paul wants to help Timothy with that. I want you to keep that in mind. And one of the, the two arguments that I'm going to make from this text is that both Paul believed and taught Tom, uh, Timothy to believe two things about the Bible. Number one, that there are no mistakes in the Bible. That's what we know as inerrancy in theology. Like, even if you don't understand certain things in the Bible, it doesn't mean that there are mistakes in the Bible because we believe that the, that the Bible is inerrant. There are no mistakes in the Bible. And I'll, I'll prove why in a second. Right, And then the second thing that Paul is going to teach Tim, uh, Timothy is that there's, uh, we believe in the sufficiency of a Scripture, meaning that everything that we need to know about God, about salvation, and about Christian living, you find it in the Bible. It doesn't mean that there are no more truths outside the Bible, but what it means is that what we need to know 
about God, salvation, and Christian living, you find it there. And that's why Paul, as we read this passage in a second, that's why Paul is telling what he's telling uh, Timothy. He wants him uh, to remember that the Bible is more inerrant and sufficient. That's the first thing that I want you to keep in mind. The second thing that I want you to keep in mind, which I think is a very important thing, is that this is the last letter Paul ever wrote. So this letter was written uh, between 62 to 64 AD. And, and Paul died somewhere between 64 and 67 AD. So we know for sure that this is the last letter he wrote. Now, check this out. He is writing this letter from prison. And he is writing this letter knowing that he is going to be executed because of his faith. That's a really important note. Actually, if you keep on reading the book of Timothy, right at the end, he says something like this. I am already being poured out like a drink offering. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm ready to die as an offering to God. And the time of my departure is near. And then he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, the reason why I think that's a very important thing is because the reason why Paul is willing to die for Jesus is precisely because he believed that the Word of God is the Word of God, that is inerrant and that is sufficient, so and so much that he's willing to die for it. And he wants Timothy to see that. And he wants Timothy to be convinced of that. And he wants uh, Timothy, Timothy to teach that. So with that in mind, um, can you do me a favor? Can you please stand uh, for the reading of God's word? I, I know that you guys don't do this all the time, but you know, I'm here. So <laughs> 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 16, oh Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, as we open up a scripture this morning, I pray, Lord, that you open up our minds, that you give, uh, that you give us understanding, that by the power, the presence, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we come to believe, even if we believe, more about how important and central and reliable the Bible is. Please make it happen. Please make it happen. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And we all say, Amen. you may be seated. All right. So the way I'm going to answer the question is the Bible reliable is under these three points. Number one, three statements. Number one, yes, the Bible is reliable. At least that's what, you know, Christians believe. And I'm going to give you the reason why. I'm going to give you some uh, arguments from the Bible why we think that the Bible is reliable. Number two, if it is reliable, what then? Because if the Bible is reliable... And if the Bible is the word of God, then there has to be implications to the way you live and the way I live. And the way you view the Bible and the way we view the Bible. And number three, because it is reliable, what now? Like what is it that we ought to do? All right, so yes, it is and why? Number two, if it is, then what or what then? And number three, because it is, what now? Ready? Can you do me a favor? Look at the person next to you and ask the question, have you ever questioned the Bible? Go ahead. All right, that, you don't have to answer it. Just ask the question, people. All right, let's go with the first one. Yes, Christians believe that the Bible is reliable. And now let me tell you why. And I want to start with the text, and then I'm going to give you other arguments. If you notice here in verse 14, Paul says to Timothy that he has learned and become convinced of something. Now, the word convinced there is a very important word. Because it's actually where we get the word conviction. 
You know, it's when you truly believe something, when you have this conviction. I don't know if you ever um, have seen the difference between having the conviction about something and then feeling that something is right. It's two different things, man. When you feel that something is right, it's just a feeling. It doesn't mean that it, it could be true, but maybe it's not true. A conviction is something that you are certain about. So and so certain that regardless of what happens in your surroundings or what people say and people's opinions, you still believe, right? So, for example, um, let me give you an example. So if I'm talking to my wife, right, and I say, uh, baby, I feel that I love you. Let me finish. Uh, I, I feel that I love you. Or... I'm convinced that I'm in love with you. Two different things, right? So what Paul is, 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 the way Paul is describing Timothy here is that Timothy has grown to be a man that is convinced. He's got convictions about the Holy Scripture. Not just feelings, not that you like it, it's not just motivational, it's that he's convinced of something. Now, verse 16 tells you that he is convinced that this is the word of God because he's God's breath. Now, that, that word is, 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 is really important because um, uh, the translation will be because he, he became convinced that the word is inspired by God. That would be a better translation of that sentence. Meaning that every word in the Bible, every chapter in the Bible, Every section of the Bible is inspired by God. So even though it was written by men, by humans, God inspired every word you find in it. Can you say every word? It doesn't mean that God was dictating human beings what to write. It means that he was a human author under the influence and the inspiration of God. Every single little thing you find in the Bible is like that. It's God's word because he's inspired by him. Paul believed that and that's why he was willing to die like that. And he wanted Timothy, even though he believed, to believe it even more. What is interesting is that there's a second definition to the word conviction or convinced. And it's trust. See... Every time you find that word in the New Testament, it means conviction. Convinced means conviction, but it also means trust. Not only you know up here that the word of God is the word of God, but you live in such a way that you trust that the word of God is the word of God. See, lately, for example, I've been hearing some pastors that they believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, meaning that there's, there's no mistakes in the Bible. But they don't claim Anything about the sufficiency of the scripture. Meaning that the Bible is enough for us to know about God, salvation, and Christian living. There's a difference. But if the word of God is inspired by God, then we ought to trust everything that the Bible says, even when you don't understand it. And I will explain that in a second. Right? Um, obviously, when Paul is writing this to Timothy, he's talking about, at this point, he's only talking about the Old Testament. Right, because the the New Testament is not is not yet is, is is not finished yet. But throughout history, Christians have applied the same principle to the Old Testament and to the New Testament. We believe that the whole Bible is God's word, inspired by Him, and that changes everything. Now, let me let me let me explain. Give you six reasons. Why is it that we came to this point? Why is it that Christians today believe that this is true? All right? And this is uh, biblical arguments, right? So um, a part of the reason, Will and I were talking about this last week, because in the way we set these questions, we realized that the first question that we should have start, started with was this one. This is the thing. If we don't believe the inerrancy and sufficiency of the Bible, nothing else makes sense. Right? So, so if you have been a Christian for a while and you don't believe that the Bible, that the Bible is the Word of God, uh, you're not a Christian. So everything we believe, and all of our arguments, actually, because I've been following uh, Will, uh, because, you know, I, 
I'm a stalker. So I, I've been following William his sermons, and, and all his arguments are coming from the Scripture. It's the same thing that we do in, in our North Avenue um, campus. Part, part of the idea is that this is what we believe, and that's why we use the Bible to reason why we believe what we believe. So reason number one, why is it that Christians believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Number one, it has to do with the timing, especially of the timing of the writings, the timing that the, the Gospels were written. Seems like a, like a tiny little thing, but it's a very important thing. So most of the Gospels were written between 30 to 40 years after Jesus uh, resurrected, died and resurrected. Paul's writings were more or less between 25 to 35 to 40 years after Jesus died and resurrected. This is what is interesting, though. That by the time the Gospels were written, and this is a class, okay, people? Okay, students? Uh, by the time the Gospels were written, a whole generation that had seen Jesus and heard Jesus directly were still alive. That's a very important note. Because everything and anything that the Gospel writers wrote, even Paul and the rest of the people in the Bible wrote in the New Testament, most of the people that heard and saw Jesus were still alive. Meaning, if there was anything they said that was not true, people would actually go against them automatically, including his enemies. And yet, there are no historical records of that. You know what's even more interesting? That we believe things about history that were written 170, 180, 200 years after the events. And we take them as historical pieces. Why wouldn't we trust the Bible especially the Gospels and the New Testament, if they were all written within 30 to 40 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's really important. It's a really important argument. Why is it that nobody went against the disciples and said, you guys are lying? Number two, we got the eyewitnesses. This is super interesting. You guys remember when Jesus is going, for those of you that know the story of the story of the crucifixion, as Jesus is, is being driven to the cross, uh, he falls, and then they call this man that his name is Simon of Cyrene, right? And you find that in, in Mark chapter 15, and he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. These are all information that you find there, all right? Um, Paul, in his writings, when he's talking about Jesus' resurrection, he says that there were 500 witnesses to his resurrection. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Do you know why that information is there? See, the way these people are writing uh, the New Testament is in such a way that if you had a question about what they're writing, you had the chance to go and ask the person, was this true? It's a tiny little detail, but it's really important. If you have questions about Jesus Christ, you could go to the people that are mentioned here and say, was this true or is this fiction? So you got the timing, you got eyewitnesses, you got the honesty of the Bible. So some of the skeptics, when it comes to the Bible, they're saying, well, I think that the Bible, this is what they say. We think that the Bible was written by men that wanted to control other people by their beliefs. So they see the Bible as a power move. Question. If you wanted to control people, and if you wanted to uh, create your own movement of power, what kind of leaders would you pick? Would you, would you display the, um, the failures of the leaders? This is what is interesting about the Bible, though. That the ultimate leader is Jesus. And you find the gospel, uh, the ultimate leader crying out to God, please take this wrath away from me. Wasn't that a sign of weakness? If I wanted people to believe in Jesus because he's a power freak, I would never write his weaknesses so people would see. I would have never shown Jesus at the cross died, crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? I would have never written anything about all the, how, how uh, jealous the disciples were, how inconsistent they were, how, how little faith they had. And all of that stuff is written in the Bible. Actually, for those of you that are Bible people, which could be the worst example of the disciples? Peter's denial. You know where you find that? In the Gospel of Mark. Actually, you find it in another Gospel, but it's specific in the Gospel of Mark. 
You know who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Peter. You fell right into that one. Peter dictated to Mark what he was supposed to write. And Peter tells Mark, show them what a lame leader I am. How unfaithful I was to Jesus. So one of the reasons why we believe that the Bible is the word of God is because we have people that are not supposed to be there if this was a power control. Actually, if I wanted to control people with my theology, I would have, back in those days, I would have never included women as part of the testimony. Before you shoot, hold on. During those days, women were considered to be second-class citizens. They were not even allowed to go to court and give testimony. And yet Jesus and the Gospels show the evidence of people, like women, that nobody will believe. And that tells you that this has to be true. Those are the little things that we skip as a Western people, which is written, and it makes sense, right? But in the context of the story, that wouldn't make sense. And the reason why that stuff is there is for us to believe that this was true and this was real. Number four, every single little detail in the story. And this is where C.S. Lewis helps us a little bit. You know, C.S. Lewis was an an expert in in, in writing and poetry and and, uh, first century writing, second century writing. He he was an expert and all of that stuff. And he argues that... um, People back in those days, uh, when they would write a piece of literature, they were, never, they were not into the little details of the story. Because what they wanted was for us to get the big picture. Now, in modern times, we want things to look real, so we actually put a lot of little details into the story so people know that this is true. Right? But not in those times. But there are pieces in the Gospels that you would say, why is that even there? It, it doesn't matter. Yet, it matters if you want to believe that this is true. So, for example... Um, Mark chapter 4 shows Jesus in a boat, right? And he falls asleep, right? It actually, the image that he creates is that he falls asleep like this. And you would say, I don't need to know that. You know what I need to know from that story is that later on he woke up, he told the storm, shh, and the storm stopped. That's what I need to know. But the gospel writers know that if we want to believe that that's true, we have to pay attention to the little details, the Gospels say things that prove that they were right. So, for example, you go to John chapter 21. It describes this encounter that Jesus has with the disciples, and, they, and it says that they were 100 yards from the shore. Did I say that right? From, from, from the edge of the water, right? That little detail, we don't need. But if we want to believe that the Bible is right, that little detail proves that it is correct. You remember when Jesus makes this miracle and he feeds 5,000 people? You would say, that's what I need to know. There's a little disinformation there that we don't need to, that we don't need to know. You know what that is? That there were 12 baskets full of food after. And that's just to prove that those little details were historical pieces, right? We got one more... um, Remember this encounter, John chapter 8, Jesus is having an encounter with a woman that is, that is coming, uh, that is a prostitute. She was caught in adultery. And it's so interesting because this is the one when Jesus is writing in the sand. And I've heard so many people, so many preachers trying to figure out what he was writing. It doesn't matter. Who cares what he was writing? If he was important, we would know. But that little piece of information is to prove that they were writing a historical piece. Not, not just a story. Those little things. Number five. And this one I found fascinating for me. It was one of the ones that the Lord really used to really help me grasp the understanding of the Bible. Is the unity of the Bible. All right. Let's do an exercise, okay? How many of you guys were born in the United States? Raise your hand. All right. How many of you guys know um, the culture of the United States? How many of you guys are between 20 to 40, uh, age 20 to 40, age uh, 50? 
you would think that most of you have things in common. Actually, I could ask you almost any question about the United States, and that group in specific is going to be able to answer it. The problem, though, is that if your life, compared to mine in Latin America, is completely different. And let's say that we're telling one story. You're going to tell this story one way, and I'm going to tell this story another way. You know why? Because we have background differences, ethnic differences, um, uh, experience differences. We got all that stuff. You know what's beautiful about the Bible? It's 66 books, right? 39 for the, 39 for the Old Testament, 29 for the New Testament, 40 different authors, 40 different people writing the Bible from three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And the whole Bible is one story, is one narrative. There's not one part in the Bible, even though it seems for some people that contradicts each, uh, that contradicts, uh, each other. It's consistent. It's one single story, the story of creation, fall, uh, uh, creation, fall, redemption and restoration. It's one story. It doesn't matter if you start in the New Testament. It doesn't matter if you start in the Old Testament. It doesn't matter if you have the historical books or the epistles. It doesn't matter where you grab it. At the end of the day, you can see that the Bible is united, completely united. So the Old Testament points to the New Testament, and the New Testament explains the Old Testament. It's, it's fascinating to me. The Bible has, the, the New Testament alone has 933 references to the Old Testament. Meaning that if you only know the New Testament, you only know half of the story. Or if you only know the Old Testament, you only know half of the story. It's, it's beautiful how to see, uh, part of my devotional time, I, I read four sections of the scripture. So I read one historical piece, usually one of the prophets, one of the gospels, and one of the pieces of the rest of the books later on, the pastoral letters and stuff like that. And you see, it's amazing to see how sometimes I'm reading four different chapters and every chapter has one theme in common. It's amazing to see. And lastly... The reason why we believe that the Bible is God's word is because of what it does. See, I, I would say that all the, the, the evidences that I show you right here, they're true and enough for us to believe. But there's nothing that is more convincing than the life of a person changed by the power of the word. I don't care what people say, that's the best evidence. This week I was hearing about this uh, testimony that um, Billy Graham went to play golf, which is so interesting because I never thought that he would play golf, right? But he went to play golf with this man that is, is, is not a Christian. And they play all the, the 18 holes, because that's what it is, right? Uh, they're playing all the 18 holes, and, uh, and at, the end of, at the end of the thing, they ask the man, so how was it to play with Billy Graham? And he said, oh, that guy is so annoying. He says, why? He's shoving his faith, in, his faith in my face all the time. And they asked, what did he say? And, and he says, nothing. He showed it. That's the greatest testimony. That's why your testimony is so important if you are a Christian. Because the best evidence of the power of the word of God and that the word of God is the word of God is your life. Is your life. I have an uncle that, w that was in drugs for many years, and he tells the story about his closest friend and how he came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this was happened in Colombia when he was uh, young, and he was, he was making himself a little cigarette, uh, marijuana, he's putting it together, and he, he ran out of paper. And if you know anything about that stuff, you know that paper they use is really thin. So there was, there was no more paper, and the closest thing he found was a Bible. You know why? Because the paper of a good Bible is really thin. This is crazy. This is, this is crazy, right? So he rips a page, and he rips it into little pieces, right? And he starts putting together his little joint. And as he's, and as he's putting together the little joint, he reads what one of the verses said. <laughs> <laughs> Only God could do that, man. 
and he became a Christian. He was high in a different way. <laughs> this is something that I said last week when we were talking about at church, when we were talking about if Jesus is God. I use the same argument for if the Bible is reliable. This is the only way that you can explain this thing that I'm about to say. It is because the Bible is reliable and it is God's word that we have believed what we believe, Christians, for more than 2,000 years. It is because the Bible is reliable and it's God's word that thousands and thousands of people suffer and die for Jesus every day. It is because the Bible is reliable and it's God's word that 245 million Christians suffer persecution every year. 245 million Christians suffer persecution every year. It is because the Bible is the word of God and is reliable that there was an increase of 14% 18 to the, uh, from 17 to uh, 2018, more Christians experiencing high levels of persecution. One in every nine Christians is suffering for Jesus today. And it's because they believe that the Bible is the word of God. It is because the word is the word of God, the Bible is the word of God and is reliable. The only reason why in 2018 alone, 4,100 uh, 4, people die for the cause of Jesus. In one year alone, 1,200 churches destroyed, 2,600 Christians were imprisoned. One year alone. It is because the Bible is the word of God that 2.3 billion people believe in Jesus today. The best evidence of the power, the inerrancy, the sufficiency and reliance of the scripture is what the scripture does to people. So if you are a Christian, this is just a good reminder of the little book you have in front of you. And the powerful words and the power behind every word in the Bible. And if you are not a Christian, my invitation is just pay attention. Just read. Look at the timings. Look at the eyewitnesses. Look at the honesty of the Bible. Look at the little details. Look at the unity of the Bible. And look at what the Bible does in people's hearts. All right, so that's point number one. That's the reason why we believe that the Bible is reliable. We have all the arguments to believe that the Bible is reliable. Now, if that is true, then what happens? That would be point number two. Because if that is true, that should change our whole view and attitude toward the Bible. And that's exactly why Paul tells Timothy what you see in verses 16 and 17. He says, all the scripture is God-breathed and, notice here, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And this is the part where I get a lot of implications from the text alone. Notice the phrase, all the scripture. Not parts of the scripture, not the parts you like and you understand, all of the scripture. Is God's word, including the laws you don't like. This is what is super interesting about the law, all right? You know that there are laws that we really like, the ones that uh, it, they're easy to follow? But there are some laws, in the, in the, both in the New and the Old Testament, that you would say, man, yeah, that one I just don't like. And it seems like if, uh, we have taken this approach toward the law of God in which we think that when God asks you to do something, it's because he wants to make your life miserable. You know what's interesting about God's law? You know what's the first time in the, in the narrative of Scripture that we find God's law? In Genesis chapter 2. It's when he tells Adam and Eve, do not touch that fruit, do not eat it, do not touch it. That's what he said. You know when sin God comes into the world according to scripture? 
Genesis chapter 3. The law came before the sin that came into the world. The law of God is always a good thing. Regardless if you think that it's, regardless if you don't think that it's a good thing. Anything that God is asking of you is for your own good. It's for your protection. It's for you to flourish. There's nothing God asks of his people that is not good, even if you don't like it. Now, the second thing that you see right there is that the Bible is useful for teaching, and this has to do with truth and doctrine. Meaning this, that if the, word, the, the Bible is the word of God, everything we believe must go through the lenses of a scripture. Listen, I told you before that there are other truths out there. In a sense, um, God could reveal truth to, uh, to other things. In a sense of, well, I don't want to get into that because I'm not going to get enough time to explain it. But the idea here is that everything we believe, even if it's not in the Bible, you should be able to uh, run it through the lenses of the Bible. So, for, exa for example, pragmatism, you know the concept of pragmatism when you think that you do this stuff, things supposed to go well? I don't have issues with pragmatism, but anything pragmatic I use must go through the lenses of the Bible. Must be supported in the Bible. All right, what I'm, what I'm about to tell you right now is, is meant uh, in a way that I, I want to offend you, okay? <laughs> but bear with me, okay? Just wait, wait until the end. All right, and then if you can send me an email, um, I'm not going to read it. But <laughs> listen, we all read the Bible through cultural lenses. And we all read the Bible with implicit bias. You know, that's a sociological term, meaning that we all have our preferences. And that when you read the Bible, you read it through your own experience and whatever you think is true. The problem is that sometimes we don't realize that we have cultural preferences and that we have implicit bias. So we defend things like if they were biblical, even though they're not biblical. And this is the part where I'm going to offend you, okay? Lord, give me grace. You, you have the right to believe in whatever you want when it comes to politics. I, I told you. You get to be Republican if you want, and you get to be conservative if you want, and you get to be whatever you want. There's nothing in the Bible that says that you're supposed to belong to a political party. And I'm being really specific about this one because if the, every, time I get, every time I talk about this, I get accused of being a liberal. But this is the thing. There's nothing in the Bible that says that you're supposed to be a Democrat or a Republican. Actually, if we get Jesus here... He would not fit into any of those categories. So, for example, when I preach about social issues, you say, oh, that Hannibal, he's too liberal. He's, po he's political. No, I talk about social issues because the Bible talks about social issues. Should we talk about the government? Of course we got to talk about the government. We got Romans chapter 13. My problem is when you read, you bring into the Bible what you want the Bible to say. So Saul Scott, uh, Scott Souls, which is a pastor in uh, Nashville, he says this. Jesus is way too liberal for the conservatives and way too conservative, conservative for the liberals. And I think that to be true, people. You could, you, could do, you could be whatever you want. You could vote however you want. But don't bring into the Bible things that the Bible does not say. It is better to say, you know why my preference is this than saying this is what the Bible says. That's why I have such a big issue when people uh, uh, connect the gospel to some political view. You know where I get that from? There's an encounter, and, and if you reject this one, it's on you, okay? It's between you and God. Um, but this is the idea. There's an encounter, a conversation that Jesus has with this group of people about Caesar. Now, the question, this is a group of people that are going against the government, Caesar and Rome. Right? And they asked Jesus the question, um, should we pay taxes? Now, we would all ask that question. There's nothing wrong with the question. The problem is with the motive of the question. And Jesus does something brilliant, people. Brilliant. Because he says, look, it. give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. I'm with the government. And he doesn't say, you know, you know that's wrong. Go against the government. He doesn't do that. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's 
and give to God what is God's. And I find that amazing. Because this was a group of people that are trying to align Jesus to their own political views. Isn't that crazy? That's why we believe in the sufficiency of a scripture. You got freedom to believe whatever you want when it comes to politics. But if it's not there, you have to treat it just like that. I told you I was going to make you uncomfortable. That's why the scripture is so important. And then it says that the Bible rebukes and corrects. And this is the part that I really, as a preacher, this is part of my responsibility, right? When I'm preaching, because the idea of the Bible is that it's supposed to confront you and offend you and convict you. So if you read the Bible with cultural lenses and you never get offended, you're not reading the Bible right. Because that's what the Word does. It reveals the secrets of your heart. It calls you to believe and it calls you to repent time after time. Here's a phrase that I tell Iglesia all the time. That if you read the Bible, if you think that you're good, you realize that you're not that good. If you think that you are okay, you realize that you are not okay, that you're worse than what you think you were. And if you think that you're evil, you have no idea how evil you are. Because at the end of the day, the Bible will confront you with the reality of your heart. And at the same time, the Bible um, explains even misconceptions we have. Part of the reason why some skeptics reject the Bible is because there are things there that they don't understand. And this is the part where context is important and the narrative is important. right? So for example, slavery is a big one. I don't think that the New Testament approves slavery. And part of the reason is because we have a mis- every time, this is the cultural thing, every time we see the word slaves in the Bible, we automatically bring our context. You know, people from Africa suffering all that stuff. That, that's not what it was. This is, slavery in the Bible is so, when a, when a person became a slave, it was out of, uh, it, was, um, it was the person uh, intentionally and uh, sold himself to that person because they owe something. But he was not a slave forever. The person could actually purchase his or her freedom until everything was paid. The person could do that. And there's tons of information about that. Polygamy, for example, is another one. Skeptics will, re- skeptics will reject the Bible because it says, oh, look, what is this thing? One man with many women? And, and this, is, this is crazy because if you read the Bible, you will never find that God actually approves that. You know how I know? Really simple. Because every... Uh, relationships that is polygamy is a bad relationship every example of a man married with more than one woman is a, it's a it's a headache there's not one verse in the bible in which god says that it's okay for a man to have more than one wife it's actually the opposite look at what happened here 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 mm, i wonder if that's a good idea <laughs> that's kind of the argument Oh, there's nothing, there's nothing more beautiful, more amazing, more powerful, at least as a Christian, than the Word of God. So listen to the words of Charlie Dates, which is an African-American pastor in the south side of Chicago, happened to be one of my best, um, I think he's one of the best preachers right now. He says this, His word is like his, and since he don't die, his word cannot die. And since he endures, his word endures. The word of God is living. Its predictions are correct. Its judgments are indisputable. Its corrections are timeless. Its assertions are reliable. It's fresher than tomorrow's news. It's more definite than our constitution. It's the backbone of science. It's the foundation of the highest philosophy. It's the inspiration of poets. It's the entrance of music. It will build your faith. It will fight your temptation. It will light your path. It will clarify your decisions. It would feed your soul. It would clean your your conscience, its, its words are wisdom, its claims are true, its hope is eternal, it has never disappointed, time cannot age it, and ages cannot time it. The word of God is alive, and you ain't never read a book like it, is the word of God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? 
That's why we believe what we believe. So the third point, two minutes, is more like five. Is what now, right? So here, for those of you that are exploring Christianity, is my recommendation is this. Read and listen. You, you will get to a time in which the word of God will do what it does. And for those of us that already placed our faith in Jesus Christ, someone calls us to meditate. You know what the word meditation means? It's this, literally. Chew. It's what a cow does after they eat. You know how they eat and then the food comes back and then they chew? That's literally what the word meditation means. So reading the Bible just as reading is not enough. You must chew on it. Chew and chew and chew. I was reading the testimony of Mark um, MacArthur this week. I, I don't agree with everything that MacArthur does, but this is a man of the word. And he says that he's been preaching for 50 years to the same congregation, which is my prayer for Will, my prayer for me, my prayer for all the pastors, right? To the same congregation. And he says that one of the beauties about preaching twice every Sunday and on Wednesday for 50 years is that you get to visit the same text time after time and always get something different out of that. Isn't that beautiful? All right, so meditate number two. You have to recognize what are the central themes in the Bible and what are the secondary themes in the Bible. As Christians, we defend the central ones and the ones that are not central, we could actually have a disagreement on. And that's for the sake of the unity of the church. And number three, you must learn how to find Jesus in all the scripture. And the reason why I say that is because of verse 15. If we could put it on the screen, please. Look at what Paul tells Timothy. You have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice here. The only way someone comes to the saving and knowledge of Jesus Christ is through the holy scriptures, plural. Remember that he, he is not talking, not even talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. The implication of that verse is that Jesus is in every passage of the Bible. Not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament flows out of Jesus. So I want to finish the sermon by reading something that J.D. Greer um, imagines as uh, that Jesus would say. So I don't know if you're familiar with a Bible that is called um, Every Story Whispers His Name. It's a kid's Bible. It's a Bible that I recommend that all adults read. Because it points, it shows you Jesus all through the Bible. And at the end of, so what J.D. Greer did is for a whole year, I'm trying to convince the church that we do this. For a whole year, they went through the Bible, finding Jesus in every passage, in, in the main passages of the Bible. And at the end of that series, for a whole year, he finished like this. Pay attention. In Genesis, he imagines Jesus saying, In Genesis, I was the word of God creating the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, I was the Passover lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorpost of your heart so that you can escape, so you can escape the bonds of slavery. In Leviticus, I was the temple, the holy place where you meet Jesus, where you meet God. In Numbers, I was the ever-present guide, your pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, I was the prophet coming who is greater than Moses. In Joshua, I was the conquering warrior leading you into the promised land. In Judges, I was the broken savior rising up to rescue you. In Ruth, I was the kinsman's redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, I was the pure-hearted shepherd king who rushed out to face the giants all alone. In First and Second Kings, I was the righteous ruler. In First and Second Chronicles, I was the restorer of the kingdom. In Ezra, I was the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, I was the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, I was the advocate, risking my life to rescue you to royalty. In Job, I was the living redeemer. In Psalms, I was the one who hears your cries. In Proverbs, I am the wisdom personified. In Ecclesiastes, I am the meaning. 
I'm on the meaning that lets you escape the madness. In the songs of Solomon, I am your lover and your bridegroom. And in Isaiah, I was the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, wounded for your transgressions and bruised for your iniquities. In Jeremiah, I am the spirit that writes God's laws in your heart. In Lamentations, I was the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, I was the river of life bringing healing to the nations. In Daniel, I was the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, I was the ever faithful husband pursuing an unfaithful bride. In Joel, I was the restorer of all that the locusts have eaten. In Amos, I was your burden bearer. In Obadiah, I was, um, I was the judge of all the earth. In Jonah, I was the prophet cast out into the storm so that you could be brought in. In Micah, I was the everlasting ruler born to us in Bethlehem. In Nahum, I was the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, your reason to rejoice even when your fields are empty. In Zephaniah, I am the great reformer. In Haggai, I am the, cleans the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, I am the pierced son whom uh, every eye on earth will one day behold. And in Malachi, I am the son of righteousness rising with healing in my wings. And he says, Jesus in the Old Testament is not so. Jesus in the Old Testament is someone promised, but in the in the Testament in the New Testament is Jesus arriving. In Matthias, he is the King of Jews. In Mark, he is the Son of God. In Luke, he is the Savior born to us in the city of David, Christ the Lord. In John, he is the Word become flesh, dwelling among us. In Acts, he is the Christ, the risen Lord, proclaiming salvation to the nations. In Romans, he is the Justifier. Corinthians, the Spirit at work in the churches. In Galatians, the righteous imputed to us by faith in Ephesians the righteous armor in Philippians the God who meets us every, who meets every need in Colossians the firstborn of all creation in Thessalonians he is descending from heaven uh, with a shout coming to meet us together in the clouds in Timothy he's our mediator between God and men in Titus he's the faithful pastor in Philemon he's the redeemer restoring us to service in Hebrews, he's the great high priest. In James, he is the one that works faith in us. In Peter, he is the living cornerstone. In John, he's the advocate pleading his righteousness in our place. And in Jude, he's our savior who keeps us from stumbling um, and present, present us blameless before the Father. In Revelation, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, Omega, the beginning and the end. The Lamb is slain before the foundation of the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Every freaking verse in the Bible is about Jesus. I, I don't think that the word freaking was appropriate there. I'm sorry. But can you see it? This, this is why, this is why Christians elevate a scripture. We sing a scripture. We confess a scripture. We preach a scripture. We memorize a scripture. Because we believe that the Bible is reliable. It is God's word. Let's pray. Beautiful Savior, we are so thankful that you speak and you speak today and you have always spoken, Lord, through your word. I pray, Lord, that we get to see how beautiful and amazing you are. I pray, Lord, that we get to see that everything you say, every word you say is good. Is for our good. Every word in the Bible points to you, points to Jesus, points to our salvation, points to our necessities. We thank you, Lord, that you speak. Please continue to speak to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.